You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement material. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. You're about to hear a recording of an event held at Interference Archive on February 9th, 2018. Sylvia Federici, co-founder of the Wages for Housework movement in the 1970s, spoke about the history and continued relevance of the movement. The event coincided with the publication of Sylvia's new book, The New York Wages for Housework Committee, 1972 to 1977. Um, so my name is Jen, and I'm a volunteer here at Interference Archive. Welcome. Um, if you haven't been here before, uh, we're really, really excited to have you. This is our new home that we moved into last fall. We lived three blocks away for the last six years. Um, lived. Um, and so we are an archive that is completely run by volunteers, and we archive material produced by social movements around the world. Um, we really believe in activating all of this material, making it open and available to the public. So we're open four days a week, and our collection is open stacks. So you can come in, you'll get a bit of an orientation from the volunteer who's staffing, uh, and then you can, you can look around at things yourself. Uh, so we hope that you'll all come back to do that. We're open Thursdays through Sunday. We also do a lot of events like this one. Uh, you can sign up to hear more about those on our, um, our email list. There's a sign up near the door where you came in. There's like a clipboard. Uh, and there's also a, um, I think there's an iPad where you can sign up to the mailing list there as well. Uh, we're funded entirely by the community that believes in this work. So all of our operational costs are, caused, are funded by uh, people who sign up to be sustainers, giving $10, $50 a month um, online through PayPal, or people who put money in the jar um, at events like this one. So we're going to pass this jar around. If you have 5 or 10 bucks to throw in, we're really grateful. Um, if you don't, it's really OK. Um, we hope we'll see you back here for many more things. Um, one other thing we're going to be recording tonight, so just a heads up, this will be available online as a recording and um, know that you're being recorded. And also, uh, in terms of social media, we, we know that lots of people like to take pictures and post things on social media. If you're not comfortable with being on social media, uh, please feel free to let us know. That's totally okay. Um, and I'm going to pass the mic to Josh um, in case I forgot any of the things, and also to tell us about another great event. Yeah. Um, actually, we have uh, a couple events coming up. On February 17th, from 2 to 4, we have the next installment of our Radical Playdate, which is uh, an invitation to anyone with kids to bring your kids and hang out, um, play, read books. We usually have some activities, um, and to like sort of have a conversation with other parents trying to figure out how to raise children in this um, sort of world that's spinning out of control. Um, and then on March 1st, we're doing an event uh, about the uh, 1990s feminist um, agitational political art group called Sister Serpents. They were based in Chicago um, that were doing really amazing work and have largely not been sort of discussed or written about. Um, so it would be great if you want to come out from that. I'm going to pass some flyers around and some flyers for the archive. Um, there's also a mat and a little bit of space if anyone wants to sit on the floor in the front here. And then is, is there anyone that is vision or hearing impaired that's having trouble? Because if you want to make your way to the front, we can try to convince someone up here. 
which I'm sure we can do um, to make some space for you. And I'm going to pass the mic to Arlen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Hi, um, I'm Arlen. Um, I had the great opportunity of working with Sylvia to put together this collection of materials from the New York Wages for Housework Committee. Um, and I'm just going to sit back here and run the slideshow and try to keep up with Sylvia's presentation as she discusses uh, the movement um, by flipping through images from the book. I hope this is kind of visible. We might try to turn down some of the lights in front here so it gets a little clearer. Um, but I think after Sylvia talks for um, about an hour or so, we, we will try to have breakout conversations just about how you know, you, we all understand and value our own reproductive labor and think about organizing around it. And I think that, um, you know, hopefully, um, I don't know how comfortable it will be to have those kind of breakout groups with this many people in the space, but <laughs> hopefully we can find some constructive way to do it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and then we'll return and have a kind of follow-up conversation. So thanks so much, everybody, for coming. And I'll give the microphone to Sylvia. Can we have a little bit more light? Just yeah, a, little a little bit, bit more, yeah. yeah, because yeah, it's true that uh, you can see better the paint, the pictures here, yeah. but I cannot see you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I kind of like to see people <laughs> that I talk to. Yeah. Well, that's yes. so much better. Okay. Well, how, the, how much, how bad it is. It's okay, they can see it in the book. You know. Yeah, <laughs> you can, you can <laughs> see, so that's an incentive yeah, yeah. to buy the book. So I start saying that I'm really, really happy to see, first of all, to see these so many people here in this fantastic space. No? Can you guys hear? Do I have to raise the voice? Good? Does that mean good? Okay, wow. So I'll try to speak louder. Let me know. Can you hear now? Okay. So I'm saying that how happy I am to see so many people and to be in this space, which now is a new space, huh? and uh, has so many more possibilities. And also, for me to be here in this particular you know, uh, space is a kind of homecoming, uh, because the storefront that we had with Wages for Housework was just up the street on uh, Fifth Avenue and Eight. You know, and so really around the corner. Now it's a law office, <laughs> sign of the time. But uh, you know, for a number of years we had it. The storefront was great. We had all our posters, and uh, people who come in from the community, and well, another world. So I have about 40 minutes to an hour, and I decided what I should try to do is to give you an idea of um, what Wages for Housework, what the campaign for Wages for Housework was, how it came into existence, you know, what were the politics behind it, what was the vision behind it, and uh, what I think we accomplished or we didn't. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, and then uh, speak a little bit about the book. What, what is inside the book? You know, what is the, and you know, the book is made of a lot of materials that for a long time they were sitting in a box in my living room. And uh, I'm absolutely happy and grateful 
to Adelaide, who was crucial in really bringing this book into existence. I would never have been able to, you know, have the kind of impagination, foot sharpening and so on, foot, foot that um, otherwise Alan was able to do. So, uh, wages for housework. Wages for housework. I don't know how many of you have heard of it before, but um, uh, we were an organization that eventually developed and spread uh, in many different countries. So we were an international campaign that was formed of many form groups who at the same time tried to link together and uh, we always tried to organize collectively even despite the, the big distances um, because some of our groups were in England, some in Italy, some in the United States. And my engagement with that campaign was for five years, between 1972 and 1977. And this is what the documents that I'm going to talk about uh, are related to. They come from that period. From the period when you know, our group here in New York, which we called the Committee for Wages for Housework, the New York Committee, was in existence. By the end of 77, we decided to, to dismantle, uh, even though uh, I continue to do some work with some of the women. And some of what we did afterwards is also included in the book. Now, which is for housework was formed at a time you know, when the women's movement was really uh, developing and looking for a strategy. Uh, in a way, it was a 72, 71, 72 was a period uh, very, very important, a turning point, because after a period of great demonstration, of massive presence in the street, you know, you began to have uh, in the movement a lot of discussion and debate as to what kind of strategy, what kind of strategy to follow. Right? In other words, uh, you know, what kind of, it much depended on the type of analysis that you produced uh, concerning the roots of, uh, of women's oppression, women's exploitation, of uh, the discrimination that women suffer in, in this society. So as you know, probably there were very different uh, uh, trends Radical feminists, for example, including New York radical feminists, who had developed a whole analysis centered around the issue of patriarchy and uh, tended to see uh, the discrimination against women, the particular form of oppression that women suffer in this society. They tended to see them as uh, you know, the product of a very old uh, you know, structure misogynous structure, you know, patriarchy, not uh, related to any particular form of exploitation, but in a sense having a trans-historical character. Uh, on the other hand, you also had a socialist feminist who basically had embraced the traditional socialist position, which argued that uh, the problem with women in capitalism had to do with the fact that women are excluded from uh, social production. 
In other words, uh, unlike uh, the male proletariat, women do not produce capitalist wealth. And not being able to produce capitalist wealth, they don't have any power to negotiate with capitalism. They don't have any power to block capitalism. They cannot destroy capitalism because in a way they do not produce it. They do not produce the wealth upon which capitalism depends. And finally, you also had, and this probably was a very large contingent, unfortunately, of uh, liberal women uh, whose position was that uh, you know, uh, women are discriminated not because of the system, but because they, are not, uh, they have no access to all the benefits that the system provides. In other words, there's nothing wrong with capitalism, but women have been excluded from, uh, in fact, uh, the, the kind of wealth, the kind of resources, and the activities that capitalism offers to men. So their strategy, as we know, was a strategy of inclusion, and that strategy is still there very much. Uh, now, we took a very different position from all of the above, and, uh, and I think we were very misunderstood in our politics. We were extremely misunderstood and uh, very often criticized both by feminists and by the left, uh, because the position that we took was that the roots, the foundation of the particular forms of exploitation that women suffer in capitalism, have to do with, uh, yes, the forms of work to which women have been destined and uh, confined you know, throughout the history of capitalism, uh, but uh, not because the forms of work to which they've been confined, and primarily housework, reproductive work, not because these activities are not important, not because they are not crucial to capitalist accumulation, but because they have been unpaid, and, uh, and everything has been done ideologically as well as economically, socially, right, to portray this work as non-work, to invisibilize the work, invisibilize the exploitation and the function it has you know, in the accumulation of capital. So our analysis, in a way, turned the tables around and said, no, actually, uh, there was a famous, by the way, there was a famous essay by Maria Rosa Dalla Costa, uh, Women and the Subversion of the Community, right, where in a way she laid down the, the basics of uh, the analysis upon which the strategy was built. And the analysis was uh, fundamentally that in capitalist society, women are producers as much as men, but what they produce is not commodities for the market, but what they produce is workers. In other words, they're what people for generations have called housework, domestic work, should be renamed more properly as the production of the workforce, as the production in particular of labor power, what Marx calls labor power, which is people's capacity to work, which is what wage laborer sell to the employers. They sell their capacity to work. 
and the women are fundamental. The so-called housework is a particular form of production. So starting from that, we redefine everything. We basically redefine what is taking place in the home. We said the home is a workplace. The home is a place of production, family relations, sexual relations. They're all the relations of production. And uh, you know we have two assembly lines in a society, in capitalist society. One produces for the market, you know, cars, tables, chairs, etc. And the other produces the workers that produce the chairs. So we turn the table around, portraying actually domestic work as the foundation, as the foundation of the entire capitalist organization of work. Saying it's the foundation because you cannot have any kind of labor activity without having workers, without having people who are liberated, liberated from reproductive work so they can actually spend eight, ten, nine hours on the assembly line producing the cars, producing the chairs. And we also reanalyzed uh, the functioning of the wage relation. We basically saw that the wage extracted much more unpaid labor, you know, than Marx or any of the Marxist, uh, you know, founding father of the socialist movement had ever imagined. That uh, they always imagined, you know, the Marxist concept of exploitation is that capitalism accumulates wealth, you know, accumulates profit by not paying back to the worker, you know, all that they produce. In other words, that only one part of the working day is paid. And the capitalist class accumulates its wealth out of the unpaid part of the working day. We said there's much more than that. It's not only the unpaid part of the working day of the male worker, is the unpaid path, is the unpaid labor of all those workers in the kitchen and very soon we said in the colonies, in the plantations, you know, taking an historical perspective, we began to trace a relation between sexism and racism, between, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, women's exploitation had been made invisible although their work was so important in capitalist society, you know, with the way the history of capitalism has invisibilized, you know, the fundamental unique contribution uh, that uh, the plantation economy, enslavement, and uh, the relation between the two. So this was the analysis from which we started, and uh, our consequence, let me, let me have some water, Starting from this analysis, of course, uh, for us it was uh, uh, almost natural, although that's not a, a word to be used lightly, to conclude that the appropriate strategy uh, for us in terms of subverting, subverting the sexual division of labor, subverting the particular form of exploitation that women suffer in this society, and subverting the way the capitalism functions as a whole. In other words, not only the exploitation of women, but the exploitation of everybody else. 
you know, for which the exploitation of women in science is the foundation. We thought, we rejected, starting from this analysis, the idea that in order to become, you know, more autonomous economically, in order not to be dependent on, uh, you know, a waged husband, and, uh, you know, in order not to be forced into the matrimonial contract, you know, which we saw as basically sealing, you know, this particular form of work and this particular form of exploitation. And uh, in order not to do that, then we had to begin to struggle uh, from against the unpaid work that we were already doing. In other words, we rejected the idea that in order to acquire, to gain some economic autonomy, you know, we had to uh, struggle for more work, as uh, many other feminists you know, were proposing to do. And we thought, first of all, that unless we dealt with uh, the particular problem of unpaid labor in the home, with the invisibilization of this work, you know, with the way this work had been naturalized, we wouldn't be able to change our condition in any other place where we would find ourselves. We are in, in front of our eyes the experience of thousands of women who had gone to work outside the home, and they never had the power you know, to gain a living condition. You know, always forced to the lowest form of work, the least paid, the most unsafe, the most precarious. And we realized that it's because when women went out looking for a wage job, they appeared to have no experience. And every employer knew that they were used to work for nothing. Every employer knew that they were desperate for some work. So for us, this was very important. Uh, secondly, you know, in the 70s, we were moving in an environment in which not only we had feminists in the street, but we also had another very important movement in the street, which was the welfare women's movement. This was a very, very important uh, consideration for us. You know, our welfare is being so misrepresented and vilified you know, that unfortunately many in the feminist movement and uh, in the social movement in general have accepted, you know, the definition of uh, welfare that has been given by the state, right? But actually welfare at the, in the 70s, you know, was a terrain of struggle where a large number of women, mostly black women, Right, mostly black women, not because welfare, well, black women were the majority of welfare recipients, which they were not, the majority were white women, but because black women came from a whole history of struggle. They were the most organized, they were the most combative, and they were the ones who were more determined not to accept the feminist slogan of the working, the working woman. You know, the working woman is always the woman who goes out and gets a job out of the home. And their slogan was, every mother is a working woman. And their slogan was, you know, welfare is a feminist issue. 
Welfare is a feminist issue, and welfare is the recognition by the state, right? The raising children, right, is a social contribution to society, right? Often they did not say that raising children, you know, is actually beneficiary, you know, that actually benefits above all the employers, who are the ones who ultimately you know, take advantage of the labor of the children that we raise in this society and organize the society around this exploitation, right? But they certainly said very strong and very loudly that, uh, you know, being in the, in the home and raising children, this was a major social contribution and this was work. And uh, this was not, should not be treated as charity and they protested against the vilification, which was a very racist campaign, and a long-term implication also for creating an image among the population about who is the black community, that the black community was uh, a dysfunctional community, and the, the reason for the dysfunctional character of the black community had to do with the Chinese women who were doing nothing, they were just taking money at the expense of the honest white workers, and the, this own poison that was poured for, for years. Uh, unfortunately, you didn't have a feminist movement that was out in the street fighting against it, exposing it, and supporting women on welfare in the way women had gone to the streets uh, fighting for abortion. Often saying abortion is choice, which is not, because abortion is not choice if it's only a part of choice. Choice is also being able to have the children that you want to have and not at the cost of your life. So the fact that there was this movement in the street for us was strategically crucial, strategically crucial. In fact, if you look at the book, you will see that there's a whole section in it devoted to the welfare struggle, and uh, we were very concerned with the question of welfare. We saw, in fact, what we were doing along the line, in fact, giving a broader scope to the struggle of welfare. And basically, we often said, welfare is the first money that uh, women have won, you know, for uh, the work of reproduction. And, and this is why every feminist should support it, right? Uh, um, uh, well, there's a lot more to be added, but I want to talk at the book now. I think it was very unfortunately, very unfortunate that the struggle was not supported, and that um, wages for housework was often uh, understood as a sort of productivity deal. By productivity deal, I mean a kind of promise uh, to the capitalist class, well, if you're going to pay us, you know, pay us for the work we're going to do it, and this will be all happy, we'll be happy with that. Um, and certainly, we understood that for many, many, many women to be able to have some money, uh, you know, and not to depend on a man, and not to be completely penniless, would be extremely crucial. But we also saw the struggle, you know, as a moment in a longer process. We saw it as a strategy to change power relation 
we never saw it as an end point. And uh, we saw it, first of all, as a refusal to continue to deliver uh, unpaid labor, to continue to contribute to the accumulation of capitalist wealth. And when in front of us, that capitalist wealth was being used, and particularly in those years, right, to create the most horrendous military complex that was destroying the life of people around the world and also beginning to create a massive incarceration process that, uh, you know, whose consequences are still with us today. So um, now talking about the book. Now the book, and then when I open the discussion, has several parts. You know, on, uh, at the beginning, there is a whole section that uh, in, in a way collects documents that explain our position, that uh, say why wages for household is important as a feminist strategy, and uh, as a strategy that is not only for the improvement of the condition of women, because we never saw the struggle of women as separate from the struggle of everybody else in society. Uh, and the reason why we insisted on a feminist perspective, and we insisted also on a perspective uh, coming from women, coming from the question of reproduction, is because we realize that uh, you know, capitalism is a social system that has spent a tremendous amount of energy, work, knowledge, uh, to build division among people, right? To create, to a stratified society where it appears that uh, we have different interests. And uh, because of those fundamental differences and hierarchies and divisions, there are different experiences. So that we saw very clearly that a universalizing image of capitalism would be bankrupt, would only restore the power you know, of the dominant ones. And uh, so it would be very, very important to look at society from a particular angle, from the particular form of exploitation, especially relating to reproductive work. That reproductive work was a good window to understand how capitalism functions, you know, how from the you know, most directly uh, activities that reproduce our life, divisions are created and forms of enslavement are created. So the first part collects a lot of documents, uh, some for public use, some for uh, internal use, right? So that's, uh, uh, we also have the second part is uh, discusses the kind of activities, struggles that we became involved in. You know, um, some of the things that we began to do. Our first steps out in the community. You know, the first steps out in the community, for example, you know, going out on, uh, on a May Day on 1973 and, you know, with a flyer saying Mother's Day or May Day. <laughs> No, this was our first outing, and saying, uh, no, May Day, because we are workers. Now, we don't want to be celebrated on Mother's Day. <laughs> no? And so this, this was the kind of 
the way we try to change the view. And uh, you know, now, when I go out to speak, like in a situation like this, almost everybody understands that reproductive work, reproduction, right, it's, it's important, it's crucial, it's work. And, uh, but you'll be surprised how in the early 70s, how difficult it was, particularly about men in the movement, you know, to assert the idea that what takes place in the home, that housework or sexual relations, you know, are terrains of power relation. They are terrains of production. That uh, they are not part of the private sphere. That the story of the private has been a lie, a cover-up, you know, hiding that what takes place in the home is in fact very much part of the economy, is an essential part of the economy. So the whole division between private and public has been really instrumental to hide in a whole sphere of exploitation at the center of which there are women, right? So, uh, and, and then of course there's a whole section on welfare and, uh, and many other activities that we were engaged. And then in another section, uh, we look at um, the way the press dealt with us. Right? Not only with us in particular, here in New York, although we did have quite a bit of press. Uh, for instance, when we opened our storefront around the corner, right? we, we really had for, them, for a week or two, we had a lot of local papers, but as well as the New York Times, uh, even even Life Magazine. Life Magazine gave, you know, made a whole issue on American women and the feminist movement, and they came and they took picture of, of our group. But there was a whole debate, you know, in uh, the mid late seventies. There was a whole debate at the state level about the question of what to do with housework with how to do with domestic work. You know, the 70s were a very, very interesting period. You know, there were a period in which uh, the capitalist class recognized that they had a crisis, a major crisis. And uh, you know, a crisis that was pervasive because when you look at the period between the 60s, let's say early 60s, and mid-70s, right, you begin, you have a situation where practically the most fundamental structure of the capitalist system began to shake up. You have the anti-colonial struggle, you know, rising, you know, across, across the world, right, with, uh, in fact, the United Nations rushing to decolonize, rushing to uh, pose itself, you know, pretend to, to lead the struggle for decolonization, you know, just to make sure that decolonization would take place in ways compatible with the needs of international capital. You know? So the United Nations, the United Nations has played exactly the same role with the women's movement. You know, when the women's movement began to really massify, there you have the United Nations rushing in and becoming the leader. Now they, they lead and, uh, in the emancipation of women 
And so they make sure that actually women are integrated into the plans of international capital development. So in any case, anti-colonial struggle, the struggle of blue-collar workers everywhere, Italy, France, France 68, Renault, Dagenham, Ford in England, Detroit, the League of Revolutionary Workers. So the, the blue-collar land was a disaster land. People were fighting for time out. You know, people were not fighting for more money, more work. They were fighting for time out. Then you have the women's movement. You have the anti-war movement, the student movement. Then you have the women's movement. We're saying no to the family deal, right? The man will support me and uh, you know, he will have access to my body and to my housework. This is the deal. You know, now we have this Me Too movement. And now everybody saying, oh, these bad, bad men. Yes, they're bad, bad men. But the reality is that women have been set up. Actually, what these men were, were doing, in a way, was an extension of the matrimonial deal, right? I bring you some money, some resources. I take care of your needs. And then I have a right over your body. Remember, until the 80s, in most of the country, rape in the family never existed, right? So the man brings on the wage if he's a good man. He brings on the wage if he doesn't drink it up. And then, you know, he has complete control over your body. This is the exchange. This is the exchange on which capitalism has built the exploitation of women. Right? I call it a form of indirect rule. You know, capitalism has not exploited women directly in the home, but through the husband. There's been a delegation of power. Through the wage, through the wage there's been a delegation of power. You know, through the unpaid labor of women and their dependence, right? the male worker has been able to control, supervise the labor, ensure that she will perform and has been given traditionally also the power to punish women so that domestic violence is not real violence. The power to punish women because, of course, it's part of the labor of supervision. Yeah, so the, now, there was a debate you know, that begins in the late 70s. At the moment in which you have a capitalist class that is seeing all these uh, structures Right, shaking in a sense, and realizes the need for a major restructuring of the world economy. And uh, the, I said it was interesting because there's a period of experimentation. I think between uh, 74 to 79, there's a lot of experimentation before, before they take the lead in dismantling the old order. You know, in dismantling the industrial structure in the United States, you know, in uh, applying structural adjustment program to the third world, which pauperizes, privatizes, expels millions of people from their land, etc. So there's a whole restructuring. But before that, before what we call globalization, there's a moment of debate with a different possibility. Among them, the whole issue of recognizing 
the labor the women do in the home. There was never really a question, really, of paying their labor. But, you know, it was the issue of what, what about if we put housework in the GMP? It's almost ridiculous when you think of it. The great debate was about what about putting housework, you know, in the, the recognition of the GMP. But even that <laughs> appeared dangerous. Even that appeared dangerous, and there were all these wild figures. How many hours? So they went around. How many hours? How many hours does a housewife? And what do you put in those hours? Does making love this work? Many women said, yes. Yes, it is. I'm tired at night, but it doesn't matter. No matter how tired I am, when he comes home and he wants to fuck, I have to. Right? So there was a very, very interesting debate. So I decided also to include some of that literature and some of those newspaper articles, and so forth, right? And then in the last one, it's uh, the last pages are about a journal that with another group of women, many coming from the Wages for Housework struggle, you know, reproduced in the early 80s, which was called Tap Dance. And Tap Dance, as you will see, uh, was our first uh, analysis our first response to what we saw as the development of a new world, of a new economy, as a development of what uh, you know, uh, was later called globalization. And it began in ways very, very reminiscent of what is happening today. Very reminiscent. Threat of nuclear war. This was the period of Reaganomics. Threat of nuclear war. The right, the state asserting the right of first strike. Uh, we have a picture here that I put of uh, how Hiroshima was being used to advertise nuclear power, believe it or not, was used to advertise nuclear power. Uh, and also the moral majority, right? The beginning of the right to life movement, the moral majority, the family, and all this response, this counter-revolution uh, against the feminist movement. At the very time, in fact, when uh, the United Nations, these are the two souls of capitalism, and they work in a dance. They're not really so separate, but they actually work in a dance, and it works very well. The one section disciplines the other, so you have the modern majority, who is all home, family, the good values of exploitation of women, the man in the cellar. Uh, and on the other side, the other who wants to liberate women from too much male control because women have to be destined to be, as, as they became, the new engine to restart a capitalist machine that in the 70s was in crisis. And women became the cheap labor that was necessary to restart. And if you look at what globalization has produced, at every area of work, you know, industrialization becomes machilization. And in the machilas of any type, electronic, textile, call it what you want, you find women. The majority is women. Not only, but the majority is women. The service sector is women. The reproductive sector 
is women, exactly. So this is the content of the book. And uh, I'm, very, I'm very pleased to have it in a book now and very grateful to both Jim Fleming here who has produced the book and to Arlen who has helped to impaginate it and also giving me a lot of advice and we have had this discussion because actually I've met with Arlen you know, around issues of welfare. Yeah. Because Arlen, our first encounter at the Lesbian Archive was beginning a discussion around welfare. We discovered that both of us were very, very interested in the welfare struggle, thought it was so crucial, and have been uh, exchanging material all along to this day. So I'm very happy that this book is uh, available. First of all, I don't have to fear now that uh, those pamphlets and posters and documents will be destroyed. But also because I think that the issues are with us today. I think that really that when you read what's in it, you see that it speaks, it could have been written yesterday. So I hope that you will not only buy the book, but also, you know, deal with the, with the strategy that he proposes. Thank you very much. Josh or Jen? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I would also just say, um, is C. Wynn here? There was another <laughs> person yeah, who Wynne helped Wynne so much, uh, you know, with the she's book. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if she's here. I, I, I just drove in from Providence. Tonight, I don't no. think she could make it tonight. But anyway, there was someone else who would like to just Really think a lot. We can open, but and, uh, yeah, we can open. Can, yeah. I, I don't know if it's best to. It doesn't. Excuse me. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Um, like, given that we have so many folks here, it might not make sense to do breakout groups, I, but I, maybe I just a question and answer to, to would be better. Yeah, time, right, right, right. I mean, maybe we should just try to address like yeah. whatever questions are. Yeah, we we'll have um, a bunch of questions, different rounds, and then. Uh, yeah, and then you probably it's better if you come closer, you know, when you, yeah, if, yeah. if there were another mic, otherwise come closer and then you use the mic. Yeah. Right? So maybe if you want to ask a question, just please, like, yeah. you know, step come up. up and step up be and really we begin. Helpful. And we yeah. pick up yeah. five, four or five questions at a time, yeah. and then we have different rounds. That'd be, that'd be awesome. Okay. And then we leave some time so you have time to buy the book. <laughs> Should we give people a break right now? Or no, no. Do you okay. want to have a break? No. 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 Okay, let's, okay, go okay, yeah. let's go on. Let's go on. Can you speak to the um, presumably the, the group ended or broke up? And, uh huh. And you know why or, or what the kind of mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. kind of that is there anything? Yes. Dissolution mm -hmm. or resolution that was. Okay. Any other question? Maybe we pick up more than one question. Uh, hmm. Yeah. yeah. If somebody can keep it also an eye on the question because I tend to forget them. Yes. So maybe I should take three to make sure. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if you could speak about um, the 
Uh -huh. And how that dynamic, how they relate mm -hmm. to the struggles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's take these three, and then we can go on. You know about yeah. We the, our group ended, ended for a number of reasons. One reason was certainly that we began to have problems in the so-called international, not so much in our group, but in our relationship with other women, with a particular other group in the so-called international campaign, and. Uh, uh, this perhaps in, uh, in a different times may not have caused the, the kind of uh, uh, dismay or, or paralysis that eventually caused for us, but it also happened at the time uh, in which in New York, you know, many women in our group were going through a really, really, really rough time because uh, most of you, I think, are too young to remember that in 1975, and New York declared bankruptcy, or, or threatened to declare bankruptcy. And what happened afterwards uh, was a very, very brutal response by the power structure, uh, which in our case was Albany. And uh, you know, later on, many people told me New York was the first structurally adjusted city in the world. This was one of, actually, this was not true. Because Chile, actually, neoliberalism and structural adjustment, the first place was in Chile in 1973 after the golpe. But we got a little taste of it. And the little taste was that, uh, you know, New York at the time had some of the best work contract, you know, in America. And uh, what happened is, uh, and also some of the highest, you know, welfare rates in terms of what women were able to get, which was not much, not enough to live on, but compared to other places. Uh, you know, New York had more voices, for example, more items that you could, like special needs, for instance. This had been a whole struggle to fight for special needs. Special needs was a broad category, you know, where you could fight for, you said your children need a new school uniform, or they needed shoes, or you had a leak in your in your sink, and so you could get some money. New York had a, a more a bit more generous uh, welfare process than in other places, and so what you had you had this troika, these three people who began to set in New York, reopen all work contract, uh, set spies everywhere, in the telephone booths, uh, in the cars following, for example, the garbage collectors at night to see if they actually went everywhere or they slept on the road. And then the next day you had the war bulletin. You know, vilifying workers on and on and on and on, you know, showing that they were not doing their job, et cetera, et cetera, you know? So that changed and together with you know, the famous embargo uh, on oil that raised the prices of every commodity and every utility, it really began to change people's life. The kind of um, life we have been able to do, 
where we could you know, have cheaper farming, temporary jobs. Uh, I did a lot of work when I was unemployed and the political work because I could get some unemployment benefits and work on and off, but this became really impossible. So that was certainly a very important factor in, in uh, you know, we began to have meetings where fewer and fewer women were able to come, or they were able to come late, they couldn't do the job they wanted to do, because everybody was now catching up to new situation. So that, that's very important. Um, the, the other two questions, you've forgotten your ones? Okay, okay, Nedra Makila, okay. Uh, yeah, actually there's a, there's a section uh, about, uh, you know, the, the, there was a whole, there was, we didn't wait this for House of the campaign as a whole. There was a whole section for, you know, of, West, of lesbian women that was called Wages Due. Uh, and there were groups in London, there were groups, we didn't have a group, a wages due group, but of course we were very supportive. Uh, but in, in Canada, so there was a whole literature actually exploring what is the relationship of uh, lesbian women to wages for housewives. Because we wanted to dismantle the myth, right, that only women who were in the traditional uh, family you know, had, uh, had, had an interest in Wages for Housework. We wanted to say Wages for Housework is much bigger as a perspective than the question of, uh, you know, having a child and, and doing the cooking and etc. etc. It really raises the whole issue of reproduction. It really raises the whole way, the identity of women, the social expectation, how you're valued, you know, what is expected of you in society, and including you know, heteronormativity, <laughs> including the fact that you, you cannot have relationship with other women, yeah? the whole demonization uh, of, of uh, lesbian relations. So that, that was very, very central, you know, in our discourse, because often it was understood, oh, wages for houses for women, who are the classical housewife, and we said, no, this is not the case, right? You were asking about the new forms of social reproduction. Well, that's a big discourse because it's a whole lot of talk in a way, you know, because uh, what has taken place you know, in, since the mid-80s has been worldwide a restructuring of reproductive work. You know, with the restructuring of production, there's also been a restructuring of reproductive work. Know, that has, it's very interesting when you look at it because you don't understand what has taken place in the world in the last 40 years unless you look at globally. Unless you look at globally because certain things could happen in New York or in Europe because others you know, have been done in Africa, in Latin America. So that in fact the whole attack, which I call recolonization, you know, the, what we call globalization is actually a recolonization process, right? The whole attack that was done, you know, highly engineered with the debt crisis, with the structural adjustment program, right? With the whole drive to privatize land, land grabbing, expulsion of people, you know, the beginning 
of the worker, the world of, of the worker, uh, the workers of the world as refugees, which is what more and more it's happening, as immigrants, as refugees, right? All of that begins, is the foundation, is act one. And on that act one, you begin massive process of migration, including migrations of women. Right, who moved towards the metropolitan areas to do domestic work, sex work, nursing, to begin to do, take on, you know, a massive amount of reproductive work. Whereas a lot of women, the former housewife, you know, here in Europe, now are driven into the wage labor market at the lowest level, <laughs> at the lowest level, because clear. Yeah, there has been a minority of women, you know, who have benefited from uh, you know the discovery of gender, and <laughs> but uh, obviously who have uh, fairly good salaries, more creative position, likely you know a maid at home who takes care of their family or their you know housework, uh, but that's not the majority. The majority has been introduced into wage labor at the lowest level, most precarious, most unsafe, you know, and, uh, and you know, when you think of it, uh, the moment the women on a mass level take the United States, let's take what's happened here, right? They open our, the, the, the doors are open for them to enter, you know, the factory, actually, mostly the services, right? Uh, is the moment when the male wage collapses, so they cannot count on the male wage, and uh, the government begins to cut systematically the investment in reproduction, the investment in healthcare, childcare, elder care, education. So what we call the financialization of reproduction. You now have to begin to pay for everything that in the past, so that we have a debt economy. So actually, women are entering the wage workforce, this great emancipation, this great achievement, when uh, you know the, 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 the relatively safe jobs are disappearing. Uh, unions are fighting to decide what to give back. Right? Only give back, there's no gain. Yeah? The wages are frozen or falling, falling. Right, and the government is cutting. This is the moment when women are now the doors are open to them. Mm -hmm. So, and much of the work that has to be done at home is done by other women, equally pauperized, totally pauperized, coming from country which has been where you know people have been stripped of their land, where they're fighting with debts, you know, completely. They're dominating their lives. So this is the, the kind of restructuring of reproductive work, restructuring. So what we find, I just went through a whole a few days of uh, uh, catching up on, on data on um, women and that in the United States. It turns out that women, and it's women workers, not just women in general, women workers uh, are, have the highest level of indebtedness in the country at all levels, in every corner, you know, whether it is student debt or whether it is uh, or pay loan, payday loans, you know payday loan? 
as soon as women got, you know, many of them got a salary, companies have spread all over the country, right, which is the payday loan company, which is they know that the money the women are making, working for a wage, is not enough for survival, and that many women live from hand to mouth, and are waiting for the day, for payday to take a loan. They are not giving loans to those who don't have a wage, because they know they cannot pay back in many cases. So the pay loan, payday loan industry, you know, it's, it's uh, they're vultures. You know, they're predatory on the misery of a whole uh, female proletariat. We're working, 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 and, uh, but they cannot make it. And particularly if they have children. And they have to hire somebody to take care of their children or their elderly, they have somebody in the family that has problems, you know? And so, and, and with that comes anxiety, you know, women living in an amazing amount of anxiety. Anxiety and depression are now the most dominant female diseases, you know, affecting everything else in their life. You know, there's a correlation that has been found between that and family violence because that is escalating the tensions in the family, where, if, where the family still exists, right? where the family still exists, in some form or another, maybe meeting on Saturday, you know, for the only time in the week all together. Um, so this is the kind of re reproduction, not to mention of the millions of women worldwide who you know, survive maybe selling blood, selling their kidneys, selling their ovaries, selling their eggs, uh, and selling their children in surrogacy, but also in the United States. I, I was surprised to see there's much more surrogacy in the United States than I had imagined. So, the other questions? Okay, so we have, yeah, you can come, if you have a question, come closer. Mm, can we have some water? Can we take some water? Maybe for some reason. I just wanted to ask a question about, um, in terms of your group's strategy, um, mm -hmm. did you all con consider or discuss, um, or, or did you do this, because I'm not sure, um, trying to do some kind of general strike, linking up with other workers, mm -hmm. or even just, if not a general strike, then like a women's strike, a reproductive strike? Mm -hmm. Ah, you know, if you read, uh, can you read what was written on this, <laughs> right? And if we don't get what we want, we simply refuse to work any longer. <laughs> so yeah, the idea of uh, saying no and a strike was very much there. But you know, the moment we began to look at capitalism and struggles and the class struggle, from the point of view of women and reproduction, we also began to have to redefine what we meant by a struggle and what we meant by a strike. You know? So the issue of the strike was very important in our discussion. Uh, first of all, uh, actually, Maria Rosa de la Costa wrote a very good piece on the general strike. 
saying there has never been a general strike, right? The most cherished slogan of the labor movement, actually we discovered, no, there was never a general strike, because actually the women, the, the wife of the workers, also stay home, you know, cooking and cleaning. So that was not a general strike. And we said there was even a song, we never have a general strike until women too can cross their hands, right? Uh, but we also began to look at the fact that there had been, you know, a strike, a weaving, you know, a, a, for example, we noticed that in so many places, uh, there had been in the post-World War II period, a drastic collapse of the, of the birth rate. And we began to read those mass phenomena, not, you know, to see them as a whole, to see them as the result, you know, of the fact that many, many women had decided that they wanted to put a limit, you know, to the children they had because they didn't want to spend their life uh, working, 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 and each child was more work and more dependency more dependency on the man. So that we began to interpret, for example, to see those graphs, those famous graphs, uh, to interpret, to read in those graphs the class struggle. And we said the class struggle is not only in the factory, but it's also in our kitchen, it's also in our bedroom. And, um, you know, when, when the millions of women are saying, no, I'm not going to have another child, you know, that's also a struggle. Mm -hmm. Yes? I just wonder if you think this is specific. Uh, maybe you want to speak to the people cannot hear you? I just wonder if this is, these um, problems are specific to Western ideologies of family. Which yeah. problems? Um, not um, unpaid unpaid uh, reproductive labor. No, I don't think unpaid reproductive labor is only a Western problem. I mean, the whole history of colonialism is full of of uh, unpaid labor, and uh, I think it's an important you know it's an important question here, and it's a it's a it's a, it's a question that is good. Because, uh, you know, first of all, you know, when we spoke about reproduction and reproductive work, uh, we thought mostly in the 70s in terms of domestic work. At that time, we were not talking about social reproduction or care work. Actually, the word care work came much, much later. For us, we didn't see a distinction, for instance, between... Uh, cooking and caring, <laughs> because we saw that so much of domestic work had those two aspects of it, right? That the physical and the emotional could not be really separated. You know, the washing a child and caring for a child, you know, often were the same. You couldn't really drive a, a clear separation. But aside from that, right, we also began more and more to recognize uh, that reproduction, the reproduction of everyday life, right, 
it's broader than domestic work. That, for example, in a large part of the world, uh, subsistence agriculture, you know, the fact that women have a garden or have a field where they sow some food and they, they sow some food not to market it, but for the family, for the kitchen, right? That that too is reproduction. And so that in fact, when you begin to look on the world scale and you see country, you know, or region like Africa, until uh, the 80s, you still had a lot, a lot of subsistence agriculture, and even today, right? And that is part of the reproduction. But, but we began to also draw some distinction in the situation where you have uh, families or women who have access to land, right? In other words, they, they, they work, they do the productive work, but they also do the productive work on land uh, that from which they can draw products and some, and some wealth, right? From those situations in which, uh, you know, you labor, but there's nothing. There's nothing that, uh, no resources that you have access to. And so whether you're paid or not, whether you're paid or not, you're depending on money. And usually it means that you have to depend on a man, or you have to sell your body in the street, or you have to take a job uh, if you find it in, in some, uh, in, in some wage labor outfit, right? So that question, I think uh, it's important because I think now it applies to a lot, a lot of women, particularly women in the middle class in Africa, Latin America, who are dependent often on their husband. You know, who don't who don't have neither land or other resources, and uh, you know the the wage labor that they do, the the housework that they do, right? It doesn't have any remuneration attached to it. What has happened in the eighties and nineties is that more and more, because of the crisis of the male wage, uh, women everywhere have been forced into into having to get some income, some monetary income. So you migrate, or you, know, you become a maid, or you do sex work, or you try to have some other, you know, find of uh, way job, you work in a maquila, right? Or in the case of many women who didn't have this option, you go to the street and you sell something. You make a snack and you sell snacks to some, uh, um, you know, workers, some office workers and so on for, for the lunchtime. And uh, the World Bank and many other banks have uh, taken advantage of that with the whole politics of microcredit that has speculated upon it and it's been a complete disaster. It's been sold as the solution for poverty for women in the world. It's actually created a whole population of women totally, totally impoverished because the uh, interest rates are very high, sometimes even 50%. And uh, so, and the time in which you have to pay, let's say you get a loan for $200, then you're given two weeks to pay it back. And there's a reason why you're given two weeks. You're given two weeks so it's, it's uh, the, the very short time 
of repayment forces women into commerce, takes women away from the land, because the temporality of agricultural labor is not a temporality where you can get, let's say you want to invest the, the loan that you take to improve your agricultural work, to improve what you do in your milpa, you cannot. Because in two weeks, you have to pay back. So actually, the way microcredit is organized, it's presented a solution of poverty. It's actually one more way to take people away from the land, to, to put an end to subsistence work, which is really the historic mission of the World Bank. The, the, the World <laughs> Bank now, one of its key mission is to privatize land to force people off the land, actually. Because the whole process of giving individual title to the land, destroy the commons, give individual title, it's a way of expropriation. After you get individual title, it's very, you know, few people can survive that. Because the, if you produce for the market, if you are a man producing for the market, uh, you don't control the, the prices of commodity on the international plane. Right? In the case of women, women are the great subsistence farmer. They are those who are still cultivating land for consumption, not for the market. And so here comes the World Bank, here comes microcredit, say, oh yeah, take this loan, take that loan. And actually, in their way, they're forcing women off subsistence and forcing them to shift to some form of commerce because they have to repay so quickly. And uh, you know, I don't know if you, if you read the literature now. There's a whole literature that is coming out, right? That uh, you know, the the way women are brutalized when they cannot pay, the level of violence, physical and psychological, that is deployed against women when they cannot pay, it's it's tremendous. You know, in Bangladesh, they break up the house. They really have this slogan: "Break up the house." They go and they take away the tin roof. They take away the door. They put the, the pictures of the women who don't pay on the, on the doors yeah. of the banks. They make a mark on the houses so that everybody can spit on them. You know, say, oh, here yeah, these people who are not paying loans. So the women have actually been driven to suicide. And uh, there is a really whole, whole, uh, really horror story attached to microcredit. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah? Sure. Um, I, sure. That'd be great if um, you can. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> so much um, when I just got married, I made a contract index book between my husband and me to, like, the same concept as your book. Unfortunately, I had no chance to see the book first, but. Um, <laughs> when I, when I um, made an index from uh, each piece of dish to clean uh, to change toilet paper, I put the cost to each word. And uh, <laughs> because, because people call my husband, I'm not from here, my husband uh, as a bread owner. <laughs> But actually, I'm the person who making bread, so I think it's being fair. But what I realize is that, I mean, the first question is when you, in in that time, did you suggest any exact cost 
mm. about yeah. labor to people. Yeah. And the second one is what I found. Um, when I put the cost of the laborers, it's all based on uh, the labor that we can buy from mm. third party, like mm -hmm. buying cleaners or you right. know you can send your laundry. But at the same time, as a people of color, it seems like it's another exploitation mm -hmm. of immigrant, like you said earlier. So I'm feeling bad. And at the same time, I thought about it to make the laborers, the housework laborers, as a de-genderized. Mm -hmm. Does it make sense, the word? Yeah. 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 And uh, I mean, I, I think the reason I can think about it, about the exploitation, and because it's like 40 years later mm -hmm. when you brought up the issue, so what you think about this now, mm -hmm. more detail. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. But we did not ask money from husbands. We asked money from the state. <laughs> to, so usually the, the husbands don't have much money anyway, and that's the deal anyway, <laughs> right? The deal is that the husband has to give you some money, and then, you know, there are different deals that women make, how much money gives for the house, for you, etc., etc. But if you don't have any other resource, you have to depend on the man for everything. I remember my mother used to tell me, you know, that she had to always... Uh, you know, pretend to spend a bit more for vegetables or for other things because she didn't want to have to ask for a pair of socks. You know, she was a full-time housewife and she didn't want to have, she felt very humiliated, you know, after working, 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 working all day long and then having to go to, you know, my, my father and say, you know, can I have this extra because now I've, I need to buy a pair of socks. So she organized the way she put the family budget and so on. And I know that many women do that. But we asked from the state because our argument was that, uh, yes, of course, uh, our family, families benefit from the work that women do, reproduces their life. But we reproduce you know, people in this society under particular constraints, <laughs> under particular conditions that uh, are determined by the fact that these people have to become workers, have to be exploited in one form or another. In fact, you can almost, you can almost make maps of forms of housework, how they correspond to forms of wage labor. Mm. You can actually make standards. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can bet that the wife of a miner, you know, and the wife of, uh, you know, a factory worker, or the wife of a cop, I don't know, but uh, that's, uh, that's not, let's, let's leave that aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's different. And for us, the state is the collective capitalist. The state is really the representative of the capitalist class in its totality, of the world of employer, of capitalist. So for us, it's the state. You know, our argument was the real beneficiaries of this work, right? Was it, it like, was it like the concept of basic income for housewives? Uh-huh. Well, that's a big discussion, the question of basic income. It's a big, big discussion. Because, uh, 
you know, right now there are so many uh, interpretations of what basic income means that I think we have to be very careful about uh, when we say basic income. There's many, many different things on the table. You know, there is a version of basic income that is completely a right wing, yeah. right? It's the libertarian. Milton Friedman was the inventor of the idea of basic income, right? Yeah. And his idea was, okay, so there are people who don't have much money, okay, let's guarantee them a certain amount of money every month, and then we can then uh, this, it take, pull the state out completely yeah. of the business of reproduction. Then, then people have no claim on the state in terms of education, etc., etc., healthcare, etc. So you get this amount of, of, of income, and uh, that's that's of course uh, it's it's uh, it's a disaster. Particularly now, you know, one of the things I've learned from the 1980s it's uh, how fragile monetary incomes are. I've seen, you know, as, a, as an aftermath of the debt crisis, massive devaluation, you know, all across Latin America. Currencies losing a thousand percent of their value in Africa. So the moment they have you dependent exclusively on a monetary income, you are in a very, very, very dangerous position. So today I'll say yes, wages for household, but yes, also houses, free houses, this, 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 this material wealth, because the monetary is extremely uh, vulnerable to manipulations, right? Um, so the other version of basic income, which uh, this what I call the feminist version, and I know, for instance, that in Spain there's a lot, a lot of women's groups you know, or fighting for what they call la renta basica, but la renta basica in a very feminist way, using it as a kind of wages for housework. You know, they don't like to represent calling wages for housework. They want to be more inclusive and it's all very nice. My concern is <laughs> that, you know, the danger there is that once again, we draw a cover over the whole question of reproduction. Right, that uh, we go back to the idea that there is a universal form mm. of, of work, there is universal forms of, of uh, you know, being in capitalism, and doesn't, you know, all the work that feminists have done, women have done to put out the specific form of exploitation and the question of what domestic work, care work, that that is going to be lost. So this is my concern, right? Um, there was something else I, I wanted to say. Oh, putting a price, you know, what we asked for. We never, we always refused to give a figure for what we were struggling. We said that can only come as a result of a mass struggle. You know, a few hundreds women, put it even a few thousand are not going to have the power yeah. to decide or to, you know, what we're going to. And uh, so we saw 
the, the discussion, you can see it in the book, right? When people thought about what's the cost, they will look at, you know, what, what, uh, what are women earning when they work as maids, for instance? What are women earning when they go out to the home and do housework for the pay? And, uh, you know, that's a very bad way because it's a work that is devalued. <laughs> And so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a continuous circle of devaluation, right? But our view was that if we had a massive struggle, if you had really a movement of masses of women, that was the beginning of changing the situation, right? And as I said, it was a strategy at a particular time in a particular social context. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you said before in some way that you like regretted women entering the workforce um, around the same time that you were doing this work, and I wondered if you could offer like what you would have rather happened, or if this would have come to fruition, or something. Um, because I've only, in like a lot of lectures, you've only said it once, I think. So I just wanted to hear mm -hmm. more about that. Okay. There's also another question. Oh, Maybe pick up yeah. two. Um, there's another one, yeah. Do you mind coming forward? Sorry. Sorry. So thinking about the ways that you've said that reproductive labor has changed since the Ladies for Housework movement, like what do you envision a campaign around reproductive labor or you know the equivalent of a wages for housework campaign mm -hmm. today? Yeah, uh, I didn't say that I regretted that women took jobs outside the home. You know, in our group, we all had a job outside the home. I think maybe there were two or three women who were on welfare, but the others all had, or some were students, uh, and I had a job outside the home. So, of course, if I, in no way I would have told women not to go. We never dreamt of telling women they couldn't go and take a job outside the home. What we did say was that this was not a strategy. One thing to say, you do it because you need to do it, you need to survive, and you need... But the other is, what is a strategy for change? Yeah. What is a strategy for change? You know, what, what you see as uh, the terrain that are most strategically important, right? What are the kind of battles? That, I think. So... To us, of course, was not, uh, we never thought that uh, the place outside the home would not be a, a place of struggle. Of course, you know, when you go and work outside the home, that's also a place of struggle. But how do you struggle there? How do you struggle there, right? There are many ways you can struggle. Even when you take a job, take a job for it as a teacher, take a job as a social worker. There are many different ways, you know. So, for example, one of the documents in, uh, in the book is a document by a few women in our group who were social workers. They were working at the Maimonides Hospital, right? 
and uh, because of the of the the kind of discussion and work and organizing that we were doing they began to realize that the work that they were doing at Maimonides was basically disciplining other women. Disciplining other women so that when they had a breakdown or something and they refused to do housework, they would say, no, hey, you know, it's okay, go back home, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? And they began, and so they began to actually bring that struggle on their job. Or other women began to, when they went to work outside the home, uh, a whole struggle around the question of being able to bring children, to have uh, breaks so that they could actually nurse the children uh, and bring the children with them, etc., etc. Refuse to do certain jobs. So to us, uh, it's not that the, the struggle for wages for housework, right? could materialize also in the struggle for, the, for money. It was uh, a question of renegotiating yeah, all the conditions of work and exploitation in the home and outside the home and see that the way women are outside the home is also influenced by the whole issue of reproduction. That the question of reproduction doesn't stop that struggle doesn't stop when you go outside the home. So our objection was to the kind of feminist politics that concentrated you know, uh, the transformation of life for the feminist liberation, women's liberation, in terms of entering you know, into wage labor you know, on the same foot as men. First, we saw men as being exploited too. And secondly, yeah, we wanted, we, we, had, we, we were beginning to understand right, something about capitalism, right? We, under, we saw that we were looking at some of the mechanism that the capitalist, you know, capitalism had been able to use, like women unpaid labor, you know, being able to hide you know, the family, you know, that this was a very important engine of oppression, and this was a very important engine of exploitation and accumulation. And we thought that this is something we have to do. First, because we are suffering from it. First, because everybody expects certain things, etc., etc., you know. And secondly, because we are the most interested in that change, right? So, for us, again, uh, the struggle for wages for housework was a struggle that we saw as applying to every, every corner of social life. Right? For example, we have uh, you know, articles about old age, the fact that old women never retire. Right? The women continue to work, 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 and then... Uh, you know, we don't even get social security. If you are a full-time housewife, you never get social security because of their work. Even if you work all life, you only get it through your husband. If you have been married to him for eight or nine years, and if he doesn't die before you mature the nine years, otherwise you have nothing, right? So you work, 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 vacation, you have no vacation, you have no retirement, and then you have. 
So you, when you begin to look at it, right? When you begin to look at it, you begin to see that the struggle is not only in the home, it's outside the home as well, right? And uh, that if you, if you do not deal with that issue in a way, and you concentrate all your energy and hopes for emancipation or liberation into getting a job out of the home. First of all, men were refusing those jobs. Yeah. Men were refusing. Women uh, you know, actually were fighting for entering male-dominated area where the men were actually refusing those jobs, were actually fighting to reduce the amount of time that they were working there. Clearly because the, the, the wage, at least at that time, were higher. That's why women, you know, so it was clear that those jobs were not liberating, you know? And secondly, because in our view, unless we resolve this whole burden of exploitation coming from the home, coming from the way, you know, the question of procreation, sexuality, our bodies, etc., etc., etc. What capitalism, the plan that they had on our bodies, we would not be able to change our condition in other places, you know, wherever we will go, right? Uh, what do I see today in terms of a struggle? I see that the question of reproduction is as open as it was in the past, even though today you have lesser you know, number of women who are in, at least in the United States who are working exclusively in the home. It's very clear, but I think worldwide, the worldwide, the number of women who are actually are, you know, in prison in the home as we saw it, has very much collapsed. You know, a lot of women have had to go out of the home, uh, work in the streets, migrate and uh, you know find some form of income because they cannot rely on the state they cannot rely welfare program has collapsed you know male wages have collapsed families often and broken apart where people have to go you know wherever they find some form of survival right so it seems to me that uh, the struggle the, the perspective that we had in wages for housework it's still, I, I never changed my conception that that perspective was sound because really what makes for capitalist accumulation, it's really the robbery of our work, the robbery of our time, and the robbery of the earth, the land, the resources that are available. So I see now the struggle as connecting all those the, on one side, the struggle against unpaid labor in all its forms, and also the struggle to reclaim, reclaim uh, the, the wealth that is what we call the natural wealth, as well as the wealth that we have produced. So to me, there is a struggle of refusal of unpaid labor and reappropriation. These two components that are very much connected. You know, they are not either or but they are connected. Now, how do you translate them? How do you translate them into action? That very much depends, you know, on the context in which you are operating. It very much depends on the context in which you are operating. And, uh, and also on, you know, where you are located, right? Look, there is uh, 
a huge amount of struggle that are necessary against this monster of capitalist society. Struggles about the environment, struggles about contamination of the water, struggles about you know, low wages that you cannot allow you to win, against uh, a, a hazardous condition you know, in, in the places where you work. Homelessness, right? So none of us can be involved in all those struggles. I think the important is to understand where are you, where are your place? What is your contribution? What is the struggle that you have to make it? How you connect with other people? How do you connect to the other struggle? Because all of these struggles are necessary. You know, the struggle so they don't poison, so that we don't have, uh, you know, a nuclear war tomorrow, or they don't poison uh, the Hudson River, where it's already poisoned. But, um, okay, or they don't tear down the whole neighborhood as they are continuously doing in New York and build it with uh, apartments that only the rich can. All of those are connected. All of those are connected. And I think for each of us is to find out what are the struggles to which we can contribute most and what are the struggles that we need to make. I think this is extremely important. And I always like to speak now when I think of, uh, I've written a few things with the title of Between the Wage and the Commons. <laughs> between the wage and the commons, you know, the struggle. Because I always like to think in terms of, you know, what we need to do. And I, I don't usually answer the question, you know, uh, from my own mind. <laughs> but uh, I answer the question by looking at what, where people are going, what struggles people are making, right? That's the way, uh, you know, what we used to say, reading the struggles. And when I read the struggle, and just even only women's struggle, right, I can see that uh, these two directions that have taken place simultaneously by women from the same community, and now I'm really talking about worldwide. You know, on one side, the struggle for monetary income. Whether we like it or not, many people say, money, 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 how do you talk about money? You know, is what we are fighting against. Yes, but you don't fight it against by working for capitalism for free. That is a fact. If that, were if that were true, we should all give up our wages. So when people say, oh my God, wages for housing, oh how horrible, because bringing housing is money to such a sacred place as the home. I'm a bit exaggerating, but I heard so much of it. And I say, oh, that's very good. Let's join into a struggle against money. Give up your weight. <laughs> Give up your weight. You know, lately myself and also George Cafens, who is here someplace, uh, have gone, oh, here, yes, have gone, um, who has been involved in struggle around students and strike that and uh, um, recently uh, involved in the publication of an old uh, piece that they have written in the 70s called Wages for Students, which was very inspired by Wages for Housework. And Wages for Students was from the position of students are workers. You know, you don't go to school because you like it, but because uh, you have to prepare yourself for exploitation. So you're acquiring the skills Right, you're acquiring the skills 
that allows you to be exploited in one form or another, right? So since you are preparing yourself to actually benefit more, to be more productive, then they should pay for it, right? And uh, well, instead, instead, we now have students have to pay to prepare themselves to be exploited. <laughs> now that's a defeat. <laughs> if you can yeah. think of a defeat, that's a defeat, right? And uh, anyway, maybe I know there are people in the room who are also involved in this struggle. But um, what I meant to say is that in recent time, we have gone to Montreal, to Canada, and particularly Montreal, where there are network of students who are fighting exactly for wages for students, and especially against the unpaid labor that now students have to do, right? Actually, the condition of the housewife has now extended to millions of students, and the age keeps going down. Now, even in high school, people have to do internships. <laughs> so the exploitation of student labor is immense. And uh, the guise of acquiring a skill, right? a training, perhaps a job. Right? So they, they, the students are organizing, and their left teachers, their leftist teachers say to them, oh, don't bring money into education. <laughs> do not bring money into education, right? And they were saying, what do you think of it? What do you think of it? I said, right, tell them to give up their wages. You know, because it seems that it's only when it comes to women relation to money and to question of domestic work that it becomes scandalous you know, to fight for monetary income. So on one side, the struggle of women has been to access to some form of monetary income, right? And on the other has been what they call the struggle for the commons, right? The struggle for reclamation of, uh, of land, you know, reclamation of resources, uh, joining into all kinds of cooperative ways you know, to, to prevent, uh, for example, the arrival of companies that are destroying the environment, that are destroying the cropland. And there is an enormous, enormous amount of struggle taking place across the world, Latin America being one of, um, you know, this kind of network of indigenous women, peasant women, also connecting with urban women, right? fighting to defend the commons, defend communitarian forms of agriculture, um, fight against uh, you know, all the polluters that are coming in, including those for the green gasoline, and, uh, and also create forms of reproduction that are not isolating. You know, I always mention the comedores, populares, that you find across Latin America, uh, the merenderos, where women come together to uh, you know, guarantee snacks to children so they don't go you know, hungry, the mothers comunitarias in, in Colombia, you know, who are doing a lot of work with street children, you know, mostly through their labor, 
and creating forms of cooperation. So there is really a new world that is coming into existence, you know, out of necessity, out of population that are being expropriated, and yet they have to find some way to live. And they recognize they only through collective labor and only through coming together. And I think this applies for us too. I think uh, that this applies because there's a lot of expropriation that is taking place you know, in these United States. It calls itself a democracy. Uh, so there is a tremendous amount of expropriation, and I know it is also happening here, because there is no, there is entire population for whom the system now, you know, has no plan, uh, has uh, no any withdrawal, every guarantee for the future. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And then also people have some time to get some books. Good. Great. Okay. So maybe. Yeah. So you know maybe let me stop here and then I want maybe if you want to say a few things. No. 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 Yeah. Or if there's anybody who has a burning question and then maybe. Yeah. Burning question. Maybe. Burning question or maybe we just. Move on to the next uh, level. <laughs> okay. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. If you'd like to hear more from Silvia Federici or more about wages for housework, check out Audio Interference episode 22. Sylvia talks about Wages for Housework, The Power of Women Journal, and her collection of Italian anarchist and communist 45s from the 1960s. You can hear some of the songs, too. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening. calcolato mai le ore di lavoro sai non mi restava il tempo neppure un momento da dedicare un poco a me per me non c'erano feste non era mai vacanza neppure a Natale mai